Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so... Last week, or a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had, were finishing this whole idea of Jesus um, saying to the Jews that, number one, I am the good shepherd. And we talked about the fact that there were two kinds of sheepfolds. There was a community sheepfold in town, and that there was a shepherd who would show up Uh, come in the front door, in the gate, in the light of day, that he would be recognized by the watchman, and that he then would step up and he would call his sheep. And he would give the call, and how do you know what sheep belong to what shepherd is because the sheep would respond to their shepherd's voice, and he would lead them out. Um, And he would lead them out to safety, to care, uh, because he loved his sheep. He then changes the picture and he says, not only am I the good shepherd, he says, I am the door. And so last week we looked at, or a week ago, we looked at the fact that this is referring to the sheepfold in the country, to where you're putting together a makeshift pen, but there's actually no door. So who is the door? The shepherd is the door. Because the shepherd at night will lay down, he will lay down his life for the sheep. He actually becomes the door. When it says that I lay down my life for the sheep, that word for in the Greek is huper. H-O-O-P dash E-R, huper. And it actually means on behalf of or in place of. So it's this idea of substitutionary atonement, that he lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. And he goes and, and he, he then says, and I don't think we got to this part last time. He says, so I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse uh, 16, it says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So I have other sheep that you do not know about that I will call and they will hear my voice because there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who are these other sheep? It's the Gentiles, okay? And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter two because Paul refers to this as the great mystery. And I want you to hear it, it's beautiful. Ephesians two, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through three, um, maybe 13. I'm gonna give you time to get there this time. Ephesians two, starting in verse 11. Says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, you can remember uh, some prayers of Pharisees that would thank God, right? That they were not women, slaves, or Gentiles. And the fact that they were far off, they were separated, right? The court of the Gentiles was the outer court. And there was actually a sign, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they found it. I think it's in the museum in Israel. They actually found the sign that was engraved that said, foreigners who cross this line, basically you're responsible for your own death. It would be death to them. So they were separated. So this is the language that you're hearing right here. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see the picture there? He's broken down that wall. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What does that mean? He came and preached peace to the Gentile, that which was far off, and to the Jew who was near. And he is forming one body, one man, it says. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you know that's referring to also Revelations 21? Talks about in the new Jerusalem that there will be 12 gates with the names of the tribes of Israel, but the foundation will be the 12 apostles, Jesus being the cornerstone, and the 12 times 12 is 144, and better is one day in your house than 1,000 elsewhere, 144,000 is the manifold beauty of the entire body of Christ. That's what, the man, that's what 144,000 means. Okay, just thought I'd throw that out there. Does that interest you at all? <laughs> uh, it says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. So right out beside that, put Revelations 21. So you can go back and look at that. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. <clears throat> so he calls this fact the mystery of Christ. And he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs 
member of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you understand what that's saying? The Old Testament saints, the prophets, nobody saw this coming. Not only that, nor did the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The divine, the spiritual beings who are under the authority of God, the divine council, which we're going to talk about later, they did not know this. The fact that the whole plan was that God wanted a family. Adam couldn't get it done. Israel couldn't get it done, God's firstborn. And so Jesus came. Jesus came, the second Adam, the new man. He came, he was divine. He came and he was the true Israel. He was the promised seed of Abraham. And through that seed, a new family would be born. How? Because when we believe in him, we are in Christ, in him, one body, one flock, and one shepherd. And because of that, both Jew and Gentile come together as, by faith as the seed of Abraham, the family of God, and we are born from above. We are children of God. That was the mystery. God has always loved all people, all nations. At the Tower of Babel, it was split. And God kept his eye on one nation, because through that nation would come a seed. And in that seed, all nations would be united by faith, those who would believe, and they would be born from above and they would be called the children of God. That is a mystery that nobody saw coming. And it is the manifold beauty of the church, the dwelling place of God, that he dwells in us. And so that is stunning. And he says, this is a mystery that nobody understood. How is it going to happen? He goes and he says, I'll tell you how that happens is because I will lay down my life for the sheep and I will raise it up again. I have the authority to lay it down. Nobody takes it away from, nobody takes it from me. I lay it down and I will raise it up again to new life. And because of that, we are born <clears throat> from above because he paid our debt. It's the beauty of the gospel. He then goes on in verse 22. Now, we come to a second section. Do you remember how many months I told you go between verse 21 and verse 22? About three months, right? We're, we're in the winter. So it says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication... At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. All right, so it says that it was the time of the Feast of Dedication. What is that? Well, it's Hanukkah. Remember, we're in that, that section of four portraits. We've done the Sabbath, we've done Passover, and we've done all of the lessons that are in the Feast of the Tabernacles, and now we're to the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. So you need to know your world history a little bit to know what this feast is all about. Um, do you know your world history? <laughs> so you know that at one point, uh, there was this dumb cartoon when my kids were little. It was called Pinky and the Brain. And I used to say all the time that, you know, it, it would say, what are we going to do today, Pinky? Same thing we do every day. Try to take over the world. And I said, at some point, you see empires begin to build, okay? And the first empire was the Assyrian Empire, and they came in, and they crushed uh, the 10 tribes of Israel in the north, and they scattered them. And then, at, but they couldn't take Judah. And after the Assyrians came, the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came in, and they ravaged the land, and they were able to push and conquer uh, Judah, take Jerusalem. And that's when they take the nation of Israel into exile. And you have the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those. The, the biggest and the best and the brightest first were taken into Babylon and then the rest. And they were taken into Babylon for 70 years of exile. And then after the Babylonians, who was it? The Persians. Uh, the Persians came into power and eventually the Persians allowed the Israelites to go back to their homeland, although uh, many of them did not. But they went back and they began to rebuild their homes and their temple and reinstitute their life as Jews. Now remember, they've been in exile for 70 years. So when they come back, they are rebuilding their way of life. And if you remember in Ezra, Ezra creates a revival amongst the people when he stands up and he reads the law and they begin to weep and rip their clothes in repentance. And so they go back to their way of life as operating uh, according to the law as Jews. Okay, after Persia, though, comes who? The Greeks, Alexander the Great. All of this was prophesied in the book of Daniel. And Alexander the Great comes in and he conquers like no one has ever conquered before. He takes more land, more empire than anyone has before. But he dies at a young age. And when he does, he leaves his empire. He breaks it up between his four commanders. Now, the ones who are vital for our story are Seleucus and Ptolemy, okay? So Seleucus had the area, I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget, of Syria, Babylon, and Persia. The Ptolemies had Egypt, North Africa, and Arabia. The bottom line is between both of these empires is a little narrow strip of land of Israel that was right in between. At first, the Ptolemies had control over that land and they pretty much let Israel function as they wanted. They didn't mess with them. And what was the plan of Alexander the Great, by the way? They were to Hellenize the world. They, were, they wanted to make the world Greek. Therefore, eventually what? The Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. We know it as the Septuagint because pretty much everybody in the world 
uh, spoke the Greek language and the Jewish people had begun to assimilate. But so under Ptolemy, they were free to basically be Jewish, their way of life, their way of sacrifice, worship their God. But what happened is a king came um, under the Seleucid, a Seleucid king or a Syrian king came and he crushed that area uh, from the Ptolemies, and his name was Antiochus the Fourth. Okay, is he familiar to you at all? Uh, he was actually referred to as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes was the name he he gave himself, and it actually meant God manifest. <laughs> you get in my, and it can also mean great one. So Antiochus. The fourth, okay, Antiochus the Epiphanes, the great one, God in flesh. The bottom line is he was a nutbag. He was insane. He was evil. Let me just give you a few things um, he was known for, okay, because he was not going to allow the Jewish people to maintain their life. He's like, no, you will become Greek. The world will be Hellenized, and we will do this by force. And so he came in, and these are some of the things he did. He stole millions in gold and silver from the temple treasury. He made uh, possessing a copy of the law illegal, punishable by death. He made circumcision illegal, punishment by death. And if women circumcised their children, they would be crucified with their dead babies tied around their necks. Oh, this is not even, this is only what I could say in public. Uh, the temple was turned into a house of prostitution. The altar was turned into an altar for Zeus. So he put idols on the altar. He sacrificed pigs on the altar. And many say that he actually made the priests consume pork. He killed 80,000 Jews and put even more than that in slavery. He was vicious. He was violent. He was a madman. So when he came in and crushed Israel and took Jerusalem, these were bad days for the Jewish people. Well, there was a priest. Um, and by the way, Many of the priests went along with that. They were corrupt. One priest by the name of Jason was a part who uh, gave his okay for them to build a, a gymnasium right outside the temple where it was required that men enter in their birthday suits because they were so amazed by the male physique, this masculinity. And so he actually made it a requirement. So for a Jew, that was a big no-no, is to be seen naked in public. And so they made it a requirement that every person had to go to the, uh, the gymnasium at least once a year, forcing them to do something that um, they wouldn't do. So it was a bad scene. There was a rural priest by the name of Mattathias Maccabees who decided he was going to have none of it. And so he revolted, he and his sons. His most famous son, you've probably heard of, is Judas Maccabeus. This is the Maccabean revolt. And so they revolted against the Greeks, and they started basically this guerrilla army that fought back. 
They fought back in such a way, believe it or not, they gained steam and they won and they were able to take back Jerusalem from the Greeks. And they then, once they took it back, which you need to read all about it, it's unbelievable. But once they took it back, all the brothers died except for Judas. Um, Once they took it back, they then purified and sanctified the temple for use. When they did that, when they went to light here, and and so that is history. This is the story um, that is told by the Jews. I don't know if you want to call it mythology or whatever, but this is their story of why they celebrate Hanukkah is because during this time, uh, the story goes that when they went to purify the temple, that they only found enough oil for the, the menorah for one day. But the problem is it takes eight days to make that kind of olive oil for the menorah. And so the miracle was that they took this one day portion, they filled up the menorah in the temple and that one portion lasted for eight days. And so that is why they call it the festival of lights. And in the menorah, you will have nine, the center one, and then you'll have the eight Uh, lights of the menorah. So basically, it was about, it was a holiday that represented Jewish patriotism. It is a holiday representing that that was their fight for freedom. And so it was a very patriotic time of year. What I find interesting is that you see Jesus here in the temple during this celebration of Hanukkah when actually it's not what we would say a biblical holiday. This is not an Old Testament biblical holiday that the Israelite people were told that they needed to keep. This was a historical remembrance, a holiday of something that happened in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament in those 400 years. That's when it happened, and they were freed in 164 BC. I think that's interesting because you know how many times people who are really intense say, well, I don't understand, Shannon, why you celebrate Christmas, because it's really not a biblical holiday. Why, why do we do that? Why is it always all the stuff we shouldn't do? Or all the stuff we have to, why do we have to take all the, all the beauty out of it? This wasn't a biblical holiday, yet Jesus was there at the temple celebrating this amazing holiday. The way I look at it is we have very few opportunities to uh, glorify God in the things that we do in times of remembrance. And in our culture, we know there are two holidays that people seem to be more open to God in spiritual things. And those two are what? Easter and Christmas. So why are we gonna be so legalistic and slam the door because you don't think it is actually a biblical holiday? It is not correct. Why are we gonna do that? When it can be used, there's nothing wicked about it. We are celebrating and remembering the birth of Christ, and we can use it as an opportunity to glorify the Lord. Why are we doing that? So I think it is so funny that he's here with his people, and he is involved in this Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, this Festival of Lights. But the key here is that this is a very patriotic time for them. They are remembering the time when they were oppressed 
by a madman, by the Greeks, and, and there was a leader that was raised up that led a revolt that won their freedom and bought back their way of life. So this is what they're celebrating. And it says that um, Jesus, and, and then it says, and it was winter, okay? I think that's interesting. A few commentaries I read said it also meant it could mean stormy weather, uh, bad weather, which I find interesting because he was walking in Solomon's colonnade in a covered area, and in winter, many uh, rabbis would sit in that area to teach to be protected from the bad weather. And I just got tickled because I thought, yeah, storm's brewing, that's why. It is winter. It's, it's about to get stormy up in here. And so uh, anyway, I just thought that would wet your whistle to kind of understand the history. Um, you can go back and study the Maccabean Revolt. It is, it is very interesting. And Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, what a wicked man. He is the picture of an antichrist. I mean, he is wicked. And so it says that Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And then it says, so the Jews gathered around him. Now, I think this is interesting because it does not say he's sitting down teaching, does it? What's he doing? He's just walking through. He's walking through the colonnade, and it says that they come and they gather around him. Um, I want you to see what that word means. It actually is the word kuklo, and it literally means to encircle. They encircled him, or they circled in on him. It seems like a hostile ambush. It's actually, that word is actually used in Luke 21, 20, when it talks about Rome encircling Jerusalem before its destruction. So are you getting the idea? He is walking through the colonnade, out of, probably out of the bad weather, during this time uh, that people are remembering patriotism, and all of a sudden, the leadership, the Jews, the leaders, encircle him. And they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, does anyone have, does your scripture say doubt? All right. How long will you keep us in suspense or doubt? Uh, the NIV application commentary says this, how long will you annoy us? <laughs> if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, how long will you leave us in doubt? Boy, <laughs> here's the deal. The problem was not a lack of clarity. The problem was a lack of what? Belief. This is the whole theme of John. Why did John write the gospel? John 20, 31. These things I have written so that you may know or believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in that, you will have life. Everything he does, it's why almost every chapter has the same kind of rhythm, the same. I'm telling you so that you will Believe, I'm telling you this so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will be born from above. It is all evangelical. And he is saying, he's like, and they're saying, why, how long are you gonna leave us in doubt? He hasn't left them in doubt. 
He has been clear. The fact is they won't believe. So Jesus answers them. I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. He's like, I told you. When did he tell him? Let me give you some. John 3, 13, he says, I have descended from heaven. I am the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. I am the sent one. John 3, 16, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. John 5, 19 through 23, I am the unique son of God. I am the ultimate judge and all should honor me just as they honor the father. What is he claiming? John 5, 39, Hebrew scripture speaks all about me. John 7, 28 through 29, I perfectly reveal God the father. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, right, will never perish. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. John 10, 9 through 11, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. John 10, 17 through 18, I will lay down my life and I will raise it up again. What are you talking about? Say it plainly. He's like, I told you. And then he says, if you don't believe what I've told you, then at least least believe what I have done. Believe the works. Here's the problem. I've told you plainly, and I've shown you plainly. The problem is, you're not my sheep. What do we know about sheep? They hear the voice of their shepherd. Remember the story I told you about the the court case, right? How did the judge settle the court case? He went and got the sheep. And when the true shepherd spoke, the sheep followed him. And he is saying the reason you, the reason that you're not understanding, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. My word have no place, my words have no place in you. Because if you were, you would hear my voice and you would follow. He says, but to those who do, I will give eternal life and they cannot be snatched. That, remember the parable? The thief comes to snatch to steal and destroy. But he says, those who are my sheep cannot be snatched by the thief. Why? What does that scripture say right there? Because we are held in Jesus's hand. And then whose hands over his? The father's hand and then below that are the loving arms 
the heavenly arms of the Father. It cannot be. I'm going to tell you what, sometimes we worry so much about our grasp. I reached out and believed the gospel, but sometimes my grip ain't too good. It's not about my grip. It's about his. That is why I believe in the security of the saints, because I am held in Jesus's hand. Uh, Let me read you a, a quote And I think explains this from Bruce. It says, physical life may be destroyed, but those who are united by faith to the Son of God, those who belong to the true shepherd, can never lose real life, for he keeps it secure. Our security is not based on us, it's based on him. We are held in his hands, and on top of his hand is the Father's hand. I can't think of anything more secure. The only scars in heaven won't belong to me and you. There's no such thing as broken. All the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as the tears fall down, is the only scars in heaven I can are in the hands that hold you now. I love that song and I hate that song all at the same time. The beauty is that the same hands that are holding my son are holding me. We are absolutely secure. This is so temporary. This world is so temporary. Once I have placed my faith in Christ Jesus, I am born from above into Christ, one flock with one shepherd. I am secure, not because of anything I have done, but because of everything he has done. He loves his sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep, and no one, will snatch them from his hand. You are absolutely secure. Don't ever doubt it because that's horrible. And we will know him and we will know his voice and they will know us because we will follow our shepherd. It is the most beautiful picture of peace and security. And he says it in the most amazing way because he says this, why is this possible? Because I and the Father are one. Do you realize what he just did? He put himself in the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Jesus makes the statement, I and the Father are one. Listen, people will say all the time that There's no such thing as the Trinity and that Jesus didn't claim to be God. They've never read John. They've never read John because I'm gonna tell you something. In the Greek, in the sentence, I and the Father are one, one is neuter. This is what it means. And it means one essence. It does not just mean one purpose or one mission. It means one in essence. It is not masculine, which would mean one in person. He is claiming to be God, to be deity. 
And honestly, it doesn't even matter what we think. What matters is what the people think to whom he's speaking. So read the next line. What do they think? In verse 31, it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Then Jesus answered, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. So you tell me, what do they think he's claiming? That he is God, that he is divine. And so that's exactly what he's claiming. And the law said that the punishment for blasphemy was stoning. And so they picked up stones to stone him. And they said, because being a man, you make yourself God. Boy, do they have it backwards. They don't understand at all. They aren't looking at a man. They're looking at God who made himself man. It's the opposite. They want to stone him because they think that they are looking at a man who is claiming to be God. And what he's been trying to tell them all along, go back through John and read all of the things, read all of the red words. What has he been saying all along? No, you've got it wrong. I'm God sent from above. Before Abraham was, I am I am the Father are one. You should honor me as you honor the Father. He has given me full authority to judge. I am the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. I'm God who has become man. And then it gets real good. We're about to get serious up in this place. Okay, I got 15 minutes to teach you something really hard. Okay, this is what I spent the majority of my day yesterday doing. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works for the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, it is, not is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated? I want you to see that word, consecrated. What does that mean? Set apart. What holiday are we celebrating right here? Hanukkah. This is the word of Hanukkah right here. To purify, to set apart, to, and he, he's showing that. Remember, all along, what has he been claiming? I am the living temple, right? Even in the first chapter, John says that uh, we saw the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He put on flesh and tabernacled, and he's saying here, I am the purified temple, right? So he says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then you do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Oh, buddy, here we go. 
All right. That quote comes from Psalm 82. Go there. We might have to come back here. Psalm 82. (laughs) This psalm is so argued over, you can't even believe it. Okay, so I'm going to read to you Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Oh, my goodness. Okay, Uh, let me say that the first God, I'm just going to show you this really quick, where it says God has taken his place in the divine council. That God is the word Elohim, capital E, and it is singular. All right, now when it comes down and it says in the midst of the gods, it is still the word Elohim, little e. Elohim is a general term used for God. The way you distinguish which God is based on the context of what you're reading. And so in this context, you will see an Elohim who is unlike the others, who is in charge and who is the great judge. But yet, in this council, you see these other Elohim, and in that situation, it's plural, okay? So the question is, there's a couple of questions. Who are these gods, all right? And what on earth does Psalm 82 have to do with John 10, all right? Because this is difficult. So I'm going to give you uh, three ideas, all right? The first one, uh, almost, every commenta- almost every commentary you will read on Psalm 82 will tell you that these are men, okay? Um, and what they will do is they will base it on the words, uh, let me find it. They will base it on Jesus's words where he says, I said you are gods if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? So what they do, what commentaries do is they come over to 82 and they see this little gods and they make them men based on the connection of John 10 that the the ones who received the word of God And they make this jump and they connect Psalm 82 with Exodus 18. And in Exodus 18, that is the story, if you remember, when Moses has led the people out of Egypt and the law has already been given and he is basically out of his mind trying to judge the people and handle all their disputes. Do you remember this? Maybe not. Go back to Exodus 18. 
And his father-in-law, Jethro, shows up for a visit. And Jethro says to him, you can't keep this up. You need to appoint elders to help you so that they can adjudicate with the people. And in other words, they are judging the people or leading the people of how to handle disputes and how to abide by the laws of God. And in that sense, they are like gods before the people. I'm gonna tell you right now, that is a big, giant stretch. That's not good hermeneutics. Um, because bottom line, they're taking one line, they're assuming uh, the people who received the word of God is talking about the receiving of the Torah, and that then they jump from that over to Exodus 18 when there is nothing in Psalm 82 that would tie you to the stories in the wilderness or the receiving of the law or the judges. It's a huge jump. And not to mention, well, I'll tell you the next thing in a minute. So then others say, okay, it's not that. What it actually is, it's the nation of Israel in general. And so they will then refer you back to the nation of Israel in general when they're at the mountain and they receive the law and the fact that they were referred to as the firstborn of Israel. First, Israel was God's firstborn and that they were like gods until they, you know, uh, built the golden calf. That too, can I just tell you, is quite a stretch. Because do you see also at the bottom of Psalm 82 where it says, I said you are gods, son of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Well, if they are men, why does it contrast that because whoever these sons of God were that were given some kind of authority and they misused their authority and they judged poorly. And because of that, it says that in the end, they will be judged and they will be judged and treated just as if they were men. That's quite the contrast. I don't know how in the world it could be man if it wants to contrast with the death that you, you will die like men. Okay. So I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> Um, and I want to tell you this, if it is men, this statement is sandwiched between, this argument is sandwiched between two major statements of Jesus. Look at this really quick, because this kind of proves my point. I know for some of you, this is too much, but you know, sometimes geeks need a Bible study too, okay? Look at, look at 30. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. That's a big old statement. Okay, now look at verse 38. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Okay, so those two major statements are sandwiching the argument that he is using based on Psalm 82. So you tell me, if what he is saying is that these men are sons of God, so in other words, he'd be saying, I don't know why you're getting so crazy. I don't know why you're trying to kill me. Because actually, your judges or your elders are referred to as sons of God. Or 
In other words, or you, you Israelites can refer to you as sons of God. So why is it such a big deal that I refer to myself as a son of God? We're all just one big happy family. Now, you tell me how that supports his statements. Is he saying that he is like them? No. The whole point of, his to, of the argument is to show that he is not like them. He is not like them as men. And so I'm going to just wet your whistle and then I'm gonna prove it to you next week. This is the worst possible place for me to stop, but here you go. Let's read Psalm 82 again and let's not do the jumps and the hoops and the loops. Let's read it for what it is actually saying. So one more time, I'm gonna read it to you. God has taken his place, the singular God. So there is one that is above all. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, I said, so what is the word? Who is receiving the word? He says, I called you sons of God, those who received the word. Who's receiving it? It's the word that God is speaking right here in Psalm 82. He is speaking his word. And he says, I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like princes. So there is a God here who is singular and there are little Elohim who are plural. And I believe they are divine. I believe they are spiritual beings. So let me give you some proof, okay? Are you ready? And you can do your homework and then you can come back next week and we'll tie it up. But I want you to understand something. When you have the phrase, uh, sons of God, it is always in scripture. That phrase, sons of God, is always angels. All right? Genesis chapter six, and the sons of God married the daughters of men and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Okay, it is controversial, but the sons of God always refer to angelic spiritual beings, always. So if we're gonna let the Bible interpret the Bible, then that's what it always means. You'll find it in Genesis 6. In Jude 1.6, it refers to, uh, well, I'm just going to read it. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Wait a minute. They have authority? There's a divine council? There is a hierarchy of divine beings? People are like, what are you talking about? God doesn't need a hierarchy of divine beings. You're right, he doesn't need us either. But God enjoys the fact that he allows people to operate with him to fulfill his plan, humans and divine. It says, 
And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I believe that is referring to the incident in Genesis chapter 6 with the sons of God. But later on, we will see that there are others who begin to disobey. You're going to be like, oh my gosh. So let me give you, let me give you some references and you just do your homework. And then I'll come back with you being familiar with these verses and I'll tell you what I think about this situation, what he is claiming here. It's so good. Just stick with me. Psalm 89 is vital for you to read. Because within Psalm 80, I'm gonna go over, it's too bad, so sad. I'm gonna go over about five minutes, okay? Psalm 89 will also refer to the divine counsel, but I want you to notice where it is taking place. It's not on the earth. It's in the heavens, okay? So notice that. That's Psalm 89, six chapters from 82. And the commentators that talk about Psalm 82 never refer to Psalm 89, where the divine counsel is taking place in the heavenly realms. I want you to look at Isaiah 24, 21. This next one is gonna cause you so much trouble. I also want you to read 1 Kings 22. Oh, that one, you're gonna have so many questions about that one. I want you to read Daniel 4, 17, and also Daniel 7, 9 through 10. I also want you to look at Job 1, 6, and the whole story of Job has this idea of the divine counsel. And I want you to look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. All of these verses, I bet you have never heard preached in church. We have a tendency to avoid the scriptures that are very hard. And especially when people think, oh, no, no, this messes with the whole uh, monotheistic idea. No, it doesn't. Because in the divine council, there is one God who judges over the council. Basically, what is happening here is I'll give you a little hint. There is an Old Testament precedent that the Jewish people are aware of that Yahweh is also the father of non-human beings, that he is the father of divine beings, spiritual beings. And so I'm going to tell you that he's claiming that he has a godly, a spiritual parentage, is spiritual parentage. And I'm gonna explain that even more. But go in and study these verses because you need to understand this idea of the divine counsel. Because I do not believe the fact that Psalm 82 would even be a good argument for him in between the two comments that I and the Father are one and that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And in the middle to prove it, he goes, well, you guys call yourselves the Son of God, so I don't know why you're so bent out of shape that I refer to myself as the Son of God. It's no big deal. I'm the same as you. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's saying, you're right. I'm nothing the same as you. I am, I am divine, and then he's even going to go further than that. And so this is the best 
passage, but do your homework. Do you promise? All right, and remember, doubt, questions, it's all good. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you for the intensity, the beauty, the depth of your word. Lord, I know what you were claiming, 100%. And it shocked them to their core that it caused your death. This is why they killed you. This was no little statement. This was no flippant statement. You were claiming godly parentage. You were claiming that you were God. And this is what brought your death. They thought you were blasphemous because you were a man claiming to be God, but the beauty is it that you were God, but you were willing to become a man so that we could be born from above and we could be brought into your family because that's really what you wanted all along. The Bible's a beautiful narrative. Lord, I am so thankful that I'm your daughter. I'm thankful that my security lies in you. I'm your kid. I know I am. And once I am born from above, I cannot be unborn. And that is why you said that I would be in you just as you are in the Father. Cannot be separated. So Lord, thank you for that. I thank you that you are willing to lay down your life for me. But more than that, I thank you that you had the power to lift it up again. We love you. You are the almighty, supreme, everlasting God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.